The background was when Moses sent 12 leaders, leaders, into the land of Canaan to scout it out. When they came back, two of the 12 came back in faith, Joshua and Caleb, and they said, in effect, let's go get them, boys. But the other 10 had caught a deadly virus while they were in the land. It was more deadly than the coronavirus and far more infectious. It spread across the whole of the people of Israel. It was called fear. And because of that, this is what we read in Numbers chapter 14, verse 1. That night, all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole community said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in this desert. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. We do thank God for the gift of memory. Without memory of the past, the present wouldn't make much sense. And memory is a gift which enables us to enjoy good times over and over and over again. There is a problem, though. Sometimes we put on our rose-tinted spectacles. It's called nostalgia. And we remember things quite a bit inaccurately. For example, perhaps people of my generation will say to one another, do you remember when summers were really summers? From the 1st of May to the end of August, we had undiluted sunshine. Memory is adding enchantment to the view. Of course, it wasn't like that at all. Now, these Israelites, on another occasion, previously, had also used those words, if only. The context was this. They were given their food supernaturally by God. It tasted of honey. It packed in all the nutrients. But they wanted a more varied diet. They wanted a choice. My wife, Julia, gives me a choice every meal. It's take it or leave it. But they remembered the wider choice of cucumbers and onions and garlic and leeks and melons. And they said, if only we could be back in Egypt and enjoying those foodstuffs again. What they forgot, of course, was that in Egypt, they toiled through the hours of the day under the scorching, blazing sun. They toiled in hard manual labor they were choking in dust. They were under the whiplash of the slave drivers. They were born into slavery. They lived as slaves, and they died as slaves. They conveniently forgot all about that. Now, God does not want us to live in the past. It can be a form of escapism. Yes, we are to remember the past. We remember the past for the good things of God for his faithfulness, his track record with us, his patience, 
his protection, his provision, his guidance. And those memories, hitherto we say the Lord has helped us, give us faith for the present and the future. We also remember the lessons we have learned, hopefully. And many of those lessons we probably learned through our mistakes. But we don't go through life saying, if only I hadn't made that mistake. If only I'd worked harder before that exam. If only I'd taken that opportunity. If only, perhaps, I hadn't fallen into that temptation. But I did fall. And I'm paying the consequences today. And I found, as always, that although sin might taste like honey in the mouth and be delicious, it's very soon ashes in the stomach. And in the mouth, the time it's there is very short and it can lie undigestible in the stomach for the rest of my life. I found that in the past. I found in the past that when the tempter had had his way with me and caused me to fall, he became at that moment the tormentor. He told me I was a waste of space and kicked me and kicked me when I was on the ground. But what we need to remember is that God is a master craftsman and he is able to weave into the tapestry of our lives even our mistakes and bring good out of them. Well, one way he does that is, because of our failures in the past, we have a greater self-knowledge. We know ourselves better. And the more we know ourselves, the less we're inclined to condemn others. Whatever they've done, however bad or bestial or barbaric, whatever we say, there but for the grace of God go I. And sometimes our failures are necessary. I've been praying a lot for a lady called Emma Radakuna, the tennis star, 18 years of age, winner of the American Open. 18, with all that fame and all that fortune. And I've been praying that God would keep her feet on the ground. Those are deadly ingredients with human adulation that destroy many people's lives, and she's only a lass. I've been praying that she'll have good and godly advice, and I've been praying that she will not become conceited. I've been praying, in fact, that she finds Jesus for herself, and she becomes a great role model for the teenagers of our land. So I've not been disconcerted when since that time and that triumph, she's lost a couple of matches. The last one, she was just swept off the court because I know that God is far more interested in our character than in our attainment. That's true for our own children and our own grandchildren. Yes, sometimes failure is necessary. I think of that day, that Pentecost day, when the church was born. And we have the account of it. We can picture 119 believers with their eyes wide open like saucers, and maybe their mouths were open too. They could not believe their ears because Simon was preaching to this great multitude, and he was preaching like a lion. This was an unprepared sermon, and he had no opportunity to think about it in advance. And he was drawing from what we call the Old Testament, relevant scriptures. He would never have read those scriptures, that had been read to him in the synagogue or in the temple, but he remembered them. The Holy Spirit brought them to his memory. And the result 
Well, 3,000 people. They heard God speak. When God speaks, he speaks to a place deeper in us than perhaps we knew there was a place. And 3,000 people are crying out in effect, what do we have to do to be right with God and ready to meet him? And there was only one person more surprised than the 119, and that was Peter himself. Where did that come from? And then maybe thoughts came to his mind. Wow, that was how Elijah used to preach. But the moment pride just dropped into his thinking, the enemy dropped it into his mind, but God also dropped into his mind a memory of seven short weeks earlier, when, yes, he'd failed three times, he'd denied knowing Jesus. He denied the last time with swearing and with oaths. So sometimes failure is necessary in order for us to stand in the place of success later on. Paul writes, doesn't he? He says, I know, not I think, that all things, all things, not some, I know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And as long as our attitude is right, all those mistakes and all those failures will be part of that which God uses to work for our good. Also, for our good, we remember this truth, that those who have been forgiven are those who love more. Those who have been forgiven most are those who love most. That's a fact of life. We remember another incident in Scripture, and there's just so much quietness, it's so silent you could hear a pin drop. And Jesus speaks, but not loudly. He doesn't need to speak loudly. He stops writing in the dust with his finger, and he says, in effect, Okay, then, let the one of you who is without sin be the first one to hurl a rock at this lady. And then you could have heard a pin drop again. It was as though the world held its breath until out of the corner of one's eye there was a movement. Yes, there was the first one, just sidling, skulking off, head bowed, as unobtrusive as, he, unobtrusive as he could be. And then another one followed, and then another, until eventually there was not another man left standing in that place. And we told the order in which they left. They went chronologically. The oldest went first, and the youngest went last. And the reason being, the longer we've lived upon this planet, the more we are aware of the aggregate of our sin and ourself. And if we've forgiven, the more we are grateful for the one who paid the price to earn us that forgiveness. Now, the thing is this. We do not have to live this life with regret if only this or if only that had not happened. And we do not have to live this life with guilt. If we have guilt, it's from the enemy. He's putting it upon us. I would say to any young believer, if there's one verse you learn off by heart in the Bible, let it be 1 John 1, 9. First letter of John, chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sin, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the deal. If we confess, 
we say sorry, God forgives. That's his promise. If we're still feeling guilty, we've got to choose to believe our guilt, which is in our feelings, or the word of God. Psalm 103 says this, God has removed our transgressions as far as the east is from the west. That's immeasurable. You can measure North Pole to South Pole, but from the east to the west, it's infinite. Or Micah chapter 7, strong word. God has hurled our iniquities into the bottom of the sea. Where are they? They're the bottom of the ocean. God has hurled them there, and God has chosen to forget them. And he's put, if you like, a boy, B-U-O-Y, bobbing on the surface, and a notice on it, no fishing. If we do remember those things, we don't have to feel guilty about them. The sting is taken out, and we don't allow the enemy to dredge them up and throw them in our faces. We don't have to travel this life with those uncongenial traveling companions of regret and guilt and shame. We don't have to travel with them. So we needn't spend our time looking back and saying, if only. We don't live in the past and we don't live in the future. We look forward to the future. We draw hope from the future to strengthen us in today but our dwelling place is the present. That is where we dwell. That is where our focus lies. This is the day that the Lord has made. And so we will rejoice and be glad in it. It comes as a gift, prepared and planned in love as we plan and prepare gifts for those we love. It's gift-wrapped. We have to unwrap it to see what's in it. Sometimes we can more or less guess as a normal present. Sometimes there'll be surprises, and often there are smaller gifts inside the larger gift. Maybe things to enjoy in the day, maybe opportunities to take, maybe lessons to learn. And the best gift in the day, of course, is the giver. One day in his presence is worth a thousand outside. His companionship walking and talking with him through the hours of the day, drawing on his help and seeing him at work. Of course, each day is important because the present is preparing us for the future. Today is a stepping stone till tomorrow. And so it's very important that we are faithful in the little things in today. Only then will God grant us greater responsibilities in the days to come. If, for instance, I'm responsible for a group of teenagers on a Sunday in the second half of the meeting, and we go across to the schoolroom, and there are only a few of them, and sometimes they don't turn up, all of them, and I find them pretty irritating, but I need to occupy them in some way, so I do my best to do that. Then, at quarter past 12, sometimes a little bit early, I can let them go, down to have some biscuits downstairs. I, I know their names. Well, I get a couple of them muddled up. No, I don't actually pray for them. But when I lead a church, then the trouble is I will never lead a church. If I'm not faithful today in what God has entrusted to me,
God will never entrust to me any other thing more important in the future. Not so long ago, we were thinking of the story of David and Goliath. And Sir Oliver pointed out that those stones which David picked out from the riverbed had been rubbed smooth through the years. They were rounded. And God had prepared them, as it were, for that day for David to use. But God had also prepared David. In three ways, let me mention them. David, number one, had learned to control himself. If we can't control ourselves, we'll never be able to govern other people. And when his brother came and insulted him, he did not start a shouting match with his brother. He just, as it were, held his peace. Do you remember his brother said, with whom have you left those few sheep in the desert? But David could have said he didn't. Those few sheep belong to my father. Future Christian leader, hear me. Those few sheep belong to my father, and he loves them, and he has entrusted me to look after them on his behalf. I know each one individually. If one strays, I'll go after it. If the predator comes, I will risk my life to defend them. If necessary, I will give my life for them. God was preparing David to govern people, and he learned to govern people by looking after sheep, as Moses had done beforehand. He'd learned also, through months and months of practice, his skill with a slingshot, until he developed a deadly accuracy. And this was all needed on that pivotal day, that day of destiny, the day when he came up against Goliath. But Goliath wasn't the first test, because God had prepared him through, no doubt, a series of trials in ascending difficulty. That's the way God works it. We can't conquer today's test so we can deal with a sterner test tomorrow. Maybe it was a wild dog the first time, then perhaps a hyena, then maybe two hyenas together, then maybe a young lion hunting on its own for the first time, then a full-grown lion, then a growling, towering bear, and after that came the giant. God had prepared his man, only a teenager, for that time. And God is using today to prepare each one of us for tomorrow. We have to understand that. And we also need to understand that we must not allow anxiety about tomorrow to blot out the sunshine today. So we're not saying, looking back, if only that hadn't happened, and we're not saying, looking forward, what if this might happen? The world will give us good advice. It says, do not cross your bridges until you come to them. There's no help for tomorrow given today. Let me give you two examples from the sublime to the ridiculous. You say to me, John, I could never take a bullet for Jesus. I would never have the courage. I don't have the courage to die as a martyr. And I say, no, you don't have that courage. But if that day came, God would give it to you. And you'd meet your end with your head held high, with boldness and with dignity. And your death and your manner of dying would be a supreme testimony to your faith and to the living God. 
but there's no grace in anticipation of that day. Or, talking to my friend who looked so tired, I said, you look exhausted. He says to me, well, it's a job, it's a new job. Tell me, I say. I have to leave home at 20 to 7, it's pitch dark at this time of year. I've got at least a 50-minute drive through the rush hour traffic, sometimes longer. I do eight hours solid at my desk with but a short break at lunchtime. And then I've got the journey home. I'm out of that house for 12 hours at a time. And it's so tiring. And I say, well, when did you start this job? And he said, I start it next month. But God gives strength for the day, not strength for today, thinking about the demands of another day. We need to realize that. And one lesson which is imperative for us to learn is this. We need to learn to live one day at a time. Jesus said, sufficient unto the day is the trouble thereof. Don't borrow tomorrow's trouble and carry them today. There will be times in our lives where the going is so tough that unless we've learned to live this way, we will go under. We had somebody come to see us recently, not a member of this church, and in effect they said, life is just too tough, it's too heavy for me to cope with. And so we could say, could you live one day with all the help that God would give you in these circumstances? Well, I could live one day. Well then, live the one day and then live the next. Take life in bite-sized pieces. Put your blinkers on, like the racehorse, so you only focus for that which is directly in front of you. And then it is possible. Wake up in the morning, say, if you like, Lord Jesus, you and me together, we're going to make it till bedtime. And when you've done it today, do the same tomorrow. Now, God doesn't want us, I said, to live in the past, or to live in the future. But we do have the future to look forward to, and it's important we look forward to it positively. We need to realize that the future is part of the path which has been prepared in love for us to walk in. God has prepared it just uniquely for our unique lives. And we are like Abraham of old. Abraham of old, you may remember, went out, Hebrews 11.8, by faith, not knowing where he was to go. He didn't know what was going to happen to him. But he knew four things, and we know the same things. He knew who'd planned the journey. He knew who would unfold it to him step by step. He knew who would travel with him on that journey. And he knew who would equip him for it. It's honoring to God if we look forward to the future he has prepared with expectation and with faith and with hope. And just if I may, a word of my own testimony. In my BC days, before Christ days, fortunately only around here Julia knows about them, in my early 20s, I lived for sport. We were in Rhodesia, the conditions were right, it was hockey and cricket and rugby and squash. But the trouble with living for sport is that as a sportsman, you reach your peak maybe 
by the time you're 30 or very shortly after that. And then it's all downhill. Perhaps if I'd been a writer, a musician, an artist, I could get better and better until the closing chapter of my life. And then at 29 years of age, I found Jesus. I knew I'd found that he's alive, and I knew that I'd found treasure and the power from him to change my life. And I knew that I'd found an experience where the wine would get better and better because Jesus kept the best wine till last. And my testimony is that the wonder has been ever increasing the sense of adventure has been ever increasing, and I've never been more optimistic for this life, let alone the next life, than I am at this moment. That is my testimony. And I do not believe we should be looking at the future or for the future with fear or trepidation. It's not necessary. It's not honoring to God. There was a chorus which we used to sing. It used to say this, because he lives, because Jesus is alive, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know who holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. Again, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone because I know who holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. Thank you very much.